What's good, y'all? My name is Dr. Eric House, and I am on the chopping block at visceralchange.org. Listen to what we do. I don't have anything to say. No, wait, wait. I'm nervous. Yeah. It's your easy listening station. I'm there right now. Why? <laughs> You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. The them on the Visceral Change Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to this episode of the chopping block. Got a very special guest with us. My good brother, Dr. Eric House, is in the building. Sorry, sir. Dr. House, how's it going, man? Feeling good. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here, man. Uh, Dr. House is coming all the way from New Mexico, where you are an assistant professor of critical composition and writing studies. Is that correct? Yep. That's right. That's right. Las Cruces, New Mexico. And this is New Mexico State University. Correct. Indeed, indeed. I'm excited to talk a little bit about this journey and how you wound up there. But before we yeah. do anything, I, I just have to know. Uh, what is what is your take on the current state of hip hop, man? <laughs> uh, um, I'm I'm at that I'm at that age where I'm fully recognizing that the best rappers for me or the most influential rappers for me were like in the mid twenty mid two thousands to like the mid twenty tens, and I'm fully okay with 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 accepting that I'm getting washed. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so as far as the current state, like I I'm a big fan of letting the kids have their things. You feel me? Like and and recognizing that. Those those new rappers or the new the, the new movements in hip hop are important for them as they kind of go through their things because like I I, th I think about my freshman year in college right. and I mean just I mean I'm I'm in my early 30s right so um, we were dancing to like new boys and like rappers who objectively speaking I'd be like nah that that wasn't it but like at the, <laughs> at the moment at the moment it was important for us so I, I think I remember those times. And I remember, like, I did, I did have the rappers who were influential to me at that age, like the Kendrick Lamar's, the J. Cole's, the, sure. the Kanye, before the recent Kanye, right? Right. Um, and so I, I think about the changes, and like my my older cousins hated the rappers I loved, and, uh, and that's just that's just how it was. Um, and that's how it is so, I, mm -hmm. across the board. I mean, I you think about that that narrative there generationally. You'll have the parents like, "What are you doing? Listening to this? This isn't this yep. isn't music. This is music. This ain't really about put on yet. somebody exactly. else, right?" Right, right, right. Of course. Of course. So, I mean, I, I think that hip hop, we don't, people who kind of identify within the hip hop nation, hip hop generations, we, we don't really do well with time. Um, and I, I think we, we don't really think about what it means to grow up and what it means to let the younger generations have their things. Um, so I know that newer music ain't for me. Every now and then I'll hear somebody and I'm like, oh, okay, he got it. Like like Corday, I'm a big Corday fan. Okay. Um, but you know, but then I, I can only probably name like one song or listen to like one song from his album. And like, That's cool. Whereas the rest of them, they might be super influential. I was actually having a conversation with my students. Um, most of them are between 18 and 21 years old. They're just throwing names out that I've never heard about. And they're looking at me like I'm crazy. And then I'm right. like, but do y'all know who Nas is? They're like, who? <laughs> but then right. you're right, but I think about like most of them were born in 2000. So it's like, of course, right. you don't know who Nas is. Right, right of so. course. And, I'm, and I think you made a, a good point that's often, I just think, not talked about, forget missed, this idea of we're not, we don't do well with time. And I think about mm -hmm. that even in, in sports uh, as well, you know, and I'm, oh, yeah. I'm guilty, man. I'm, I'm so old school. It's not, even, <laughs> like, it's not even worth expressing. I mean, you, you, for me, I separate hip hop and rap. And for yeah. me, hip hop is the movement. It's the social justice discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the, uh, it's the five elements. It's smack. It's streets, music, arts, culture, and knowledge, right? This, and this is, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, right, to get into the game, let's say my, my time, I, I consider strong for me is going to be the 90s. Yeah. If you take a look at 90s hip hop and R&B, uh, you can't be a YouTube sensation and hop in there. You, you either mm -hmm. had it or you did not. And, and, and right. And the, the, 
the roster was stacked. Uh, and when I think about sports, same way. I mean, people talk about mm-hmm, this Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. LeBron James debate. I'm like, where's the debate? I, yeah. <laughs> what argument? What are you talking about? Right, 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 yeah, right. So, uh, so I feel you. I appreciate you mentioning that because this idea of time mm-hmm. is, is something that's that is is interesting when you explore it in, mm-hmm. in this way. Well mm-hmm. said. Definitely. Do you have a favorite rapper of all time? All time. Ooh, that's a good. That's a good question. Um, it changes a lot, and I, and I always try to keep like three on rotation as like my favorites <laughs> okay. um so i gotta go kendrick okay um mostly because like when so i mean i, I was a fan with like overly dedicated and uh section 80 came out like i, I really enjoyed those but like Indeed. good kid mad city that that was like the anthem everybody leans on that yeah 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 and and, I, and then i just love how y'all how he stayed experimenting with the sound like when to Pimper butterfly came out like that mm-hmm. you really felt the funk influence and my my pos is huge funk music fan and so they, for me, that just that just made some connections for me. And of course, Damn is a great album. Uh, right, it's, right. It's a, was it Pulitzer? What, what, what was the award he got? There's, he got some sort uh, of Yeah, he did, didn't it? Something, Something like that. that. Yeah. So anyways, I just, he, he, I think he's always been like a soundtrack to, to me growing up and really becoming an adult. Um, I'm a big, big Crit fan too, just okay. because. So my, my dad's from Mississippi, moved okay. to Chicago when he was younger. So I, I feel like I have like a Every time I see that family, I have like a lot of Southern vibes that I don't, I never really got to fully understand and explore what that meant. Right. And so that's why I kind of lean on like Southern hip hop music, like the Outkast, the UGKs. Ah, right. Makes sense. And I think, yep. and I think that Big Crit is a more contemporary version of that sound that I really identify with. Um, right. he, he, he makes what I call like car music, right? Like the, when you're just driving slow with the windows right. down, bumping the bass right. up. Yeah. Um, so I'm a big, big Crit fan. And then for that third spot, oof. It changes a lot, but I think right now I'm still on my Rhapsody movement. Okay. The last album, Eve, just was really dope to me. Rhapsody. And I think and I think she's one of the MCs who, who is. I don't think she's ever going to break mainstream. Um, right. I, but I don't saying. think. But I don't think she wants to break mainstream. Right. Right. I think her. Yeah. And I think the, the message in her last album was very clear. Like I, I know who I'm talking to, and and this population needs me to say that message. And I just right. think lyrically, she's just elite. Like. And that's and that matters. And I was having this conversation mm-hmm. with my guys the other day, not about Rhapsody, although that's not a name you hear often, mm-hmm. right, in these discussions. Mm-hmm. But talking about um, what I say, I think I said, you know, I said, you know, who's underrated in the conversation around like just lyricism and 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 just quality of, of bars. Oh, and I'll say it to you as well, Bob. And I gotta mm-hmm. be honest with you, I mm-hmm. I, <clears throat> I don't like I don't love the dude. I don't have his albums, but. <laughs> When he when yeah, he no, blows, I'm like, wait a minute, it's under, you know what I mean? Underrated, like like you know, like gold dust of WWF back in the uh, day type <laughs> underrated. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think people are afraid of saying Bob because of the whole flat Earth like controversy that when right. that came out. But they'll say but Kyrie he, though, no problem. That's facts, <laughs> right? But he especially in like the the early 2010s, he had a moment. He had a moment, and I, I don't I don't know if he's came up with uh, new music recently, but definitely you know he did have got to give it up to him they got to right 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 i mean i wouldn't put him in there with the elites don't get me wrong but you know just <laughs> you know my my guy has always been nas you know yeah, yeah, yeah. big you know sort of the standard folks you think uh, about how'd you there. feel about king do you hear king disease too i didn't no not yet okay not okay. yet not yet uh but anytime you get a chance to, to get up there with the symphony orchestra which you know obviously prior to, to this you know yeah. Uh, you got you got to make sure that he's in this discussion uh, moving forward. Anyway, so I, I I'm, I'm excited to to hear more about hip hop and and yeah, yeah. in particular how it pertains to the work that you do as a professor. Mm-hmm. 
But before we fast forward, let's go back in time a little bit. Yeah. Now, I know you were born in California, born, mm -hmm. but you you were raised here in Tucson to such yep. a degree where uh, you might quite possibly be the only, if I may, Black Tucsonan, <laughs> right? Native Tucsonan to a degree that I've ever met yeah. <laughs> being here in Tucson. Uh, yeah, so yeah. talk to mm -hmm. me, man. Talk to us. How, what was it like growing up in Tucson um, yeah. and, uh, you know, and being raised here? Yeah. Um, it was uh, identity politics is something I kind of had to come to terms with quite, quite young um, for a lot of reasons, because most of my friends, like my, well, most of my different groups in different spaces, but most of my school friends, I'll say, um, their parents were either from Mexico or from Central America. Um, and so they, they were mostly first generation uh, Latinx kids. Um, and so that was how I saw, like just seeing myself indifferent in a lot of those spaces. Like I knew that I wasn't really in that culture, but I was heavily influenced by that culture. But at the same time, Tucson has a very un unknown black community. Um, and uh, right. there's there's a lot of reasons why it's not really known anymore. So my, my mom grew up in the area that they call Sugar Hill and Sugar Hill is like fighting gentrification all the time. Like, right. for example, the, 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 the house my mama grew up in, uh, once my grandfather passed away, they had to sell it. Um, and then the university bought it up. And now it's like you see some historical looking houses and there's all of a sudden these huge college looking like right. houses. Yeah. Right. So a lot of that. that a lot of that neighborhood is getting bought up. So that's the reason why we don't really hear from them. But like. I mean, growing up, I, I knew the the Langfords, who were uh, kind of a larger black family in Tucson. I knew their kids. The kids were my age. Well, the grandkids, I should say, were my age. And so we went to school together. Uh, my guy, Brian Hill, his family is also from Tucson. He grew up in that same, his, his dad grew up in that same area, knew my mom. Uh -huh. My boy, Jeremy, his dad, the, the, the Joes, they grew up down that street too, same area. Um, it's like, you, you don't really hear about these families because as I mean, they're, they're, we grow up and we move, a lot of the kids move away. But right. uh, and at the same time, the, the unfortunate reality is as we move away, there's really no one to kind of stay and, and hold those houses and keep that neighborhood, you know, hold those houses down. And so right. they get bought up right. and that, that history kind of gets forgotten. Um, right. But 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 they, they were there. And so I, I always kind of knew about my the black history in Tucson specifically. And then you have church communities where the church I went to was, was predominantly black. Um, all the churches I went to in Tucson growing up are predominantly black. And so right. I have some of my best friends that they lived on the other side of town. I don't really know their family's history in the same way, but you, you know, that there is a presence there. Um, right. But I mean, I, I go back to the original point. I, I had to know about identity, identity politics early because I, I was in high school at the time when uh, Tucson Unified School District was having battles with uh, the Mexican-American studies. Yes. And it was, this is this was the reason why we, they started the conversation about HB 2281, which is the ethnic studies ban. Yep. Like I was in the auditorium when Dolores Huerta, uh, she, she was a speaker that came in and, and oh, her wow. line, her, her famous line, right, was Republicans hate Latinos. And like that, that got the attention of all the school board, right? So that's, yep. where, that's where Tom Horn and all those dudes came through and was trying to shut it all down. Right. Um, unfortunately, I, I felt like that was a moment where as black students, we saw the ramifications for that, but I don't know if we had a voice. And if we did, and, if, and I don't know that I was involved or had the opportunity to be involved in those conversations, partly I was what, 15, 16 years old. So well, well I don't know, I was worried about who we were playing that night. Um, but right. at the same time, I, I don't know. Um, I know a lot of my 
a lot of a lot of the teachers I knew gave us space to talk about it, but I don't know if every anyone ever sat down and was like, as a black man growing up in Tucson, Arizona, it seems like this battle is with uh, Mexican American studies and the school district. But at the same time, what they're going to do is take away ethnic studies in general, which implicates you as well. So let's talk about how it's not just this them versus them, but it's all y'all versus them. But we didn't really have that time, chance to make that connection. Um, and, and I think in the Southwest specifically, you see a lot of situations where blackness uh, kind of gets folded into these racial conversations that you never think about until it happens. That, right. that reminds you that race is, is it's not always like, there, there's categories, but at the same time, the, the project of racialization that I knew to understand growing up in Tucson was whiteness is the force that we're all kind of pitted against and that's used right. to, to order and rank our bodies. Um, right. So that, that's something I had to sit with and grow with. Um, and I think it's something that I kind of went through in my grad studies to really help start to put a language for and make sense of. And, and I wish I had the opportunity back then to have the sort of conversations that I'm kind of in now, but you know, that, that's the journey, right? So I can't be too upset with that. Yeah, um, of course, we all go through that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you made a lot of fantastic points there, man. Um, a couple I wanted to double back off of. Yeah. Uh, you know, you talked about um, the, the neighborhoods um, yeah, I think you said your grandfather's house, um, mm -hmm. and, and just some of these, these more traditionally black owned houses that have been swallowed up in the university. Um, you know, you talked about Sugar Hill. I know the Dunbar is another area, the Dunbar yeah. center for yeah. years, the university of Arizona, I think sure. trying to get their hands on that. And they've just been fighting and fighting and fighting and keeping it within the city. And I'm going to yeah. ask you a question at the tail end. That's going to tie back to, to this point here about right, the black community and, and, and ownership. Mm -hmm. Right. So we'll table that for now. It just reminded me of that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know your your right your your contrast and juxtaposition between being black and brown versus whiteness in, in the context of, of Tucson. I remember when I first moved here, not when I first moved here. So one of the first thing I recognized when I first moved here was that the the um, overtness of racism was a little bit different, even mm -hmm. the covertness mm -hmm. um, and and the mm -hmm. players in the conversation here in the Southwest were different. I remember being out one night. And a bouncer who's who I'm cool with, white guy, in conversation, he said to me, uh, you know, somebody, uh, some Latino person was singing at karaoke. Uh, and he says to me, oh, man, these Mexicans, man, like, we gotta do something about this, right? Now, this is a white guy saying it to me. Now, listen, yeah, I'm, from, yeah, yeah. I'm from Boston, uh, back east, the conversation is not white brown, it's white black. Yeah, yeah. So, this is the first time I came and I realized, like, wait a minute, here's a white guy <laughs> who feels comfortable. Yeah, yeah being racist to me, a black dude, uh, with no problem, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the first time it dawned on me, like, wow, like this is, I, in the eyes of some of these white folks, practically, not not yeah. not systemically necessarily, but immediacy, uh, I'm not the threat. And I'm not the threat mm -hmm. in the same way. And it was profound for me to, to learn that. Um, yeah. Which which brings me to my last, my last point here that I wanted to, to double back on what you mentioned. When I moved to Tucson, in my research, I found that the city was about 5% black, yeah. which is about the same it is today. And then the state of Arizona at the time was about 4.3% black. Mm -hmm. um, you came up in these numbers. You talked a little bit about this identity. Uh, talk to me about the, rate, the ways in which class may have permeated that and affected um, your experience, if at all, being yeah. one of only, for example, 5% Black folks growing up and then maybe in a particular area as a result. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, 
the I think the the unfortunate reality is that I don't, I don't think I at the time I really thought about the influences of class, mostly sure. because mostly because and and this is where it gets really messed up and insidious, right? It's like the class conversation was kind of conflated in the race conversation. So the assumption was like most of the black families had no money. Most of the black families had right. no land. Most of yes. the black families weren't didn't own their homes. Correct. Um, right. But I also I I mean I also recognize uh, that my family, my, my parents at least, um, in relation to their siblings, were, were definitely the first. Since my, obviously since my, my my grandparents owned their home, they were the first to like purchase a home. One of the first. Some some others did too. There were some of the few the few to purchase their homes. Like my mom's one of seven or eight my dad's one of like 11 um and so just percentages wise there was like one or two within each family two i say two or three within each family who like were able to get degrees purchase homes and then like start to kind of try to build some form of wealth um but i don't i didn't really understand what that meant um because that was something that was never talked about right and even then even then like i i, I fully recognize the privileges that like so so i'm married to a white woman and for her, it was second nature to say like, oh, we need to talk about what uh, having a financial planner. We need to talk about right. what right. it means to, to buy a house instead of renting a house. And for me, I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, huh? we're good, right? The house is a house, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, and, I, and I don't understand, and I didn't understand that like when, you, when you're paying a mortgage, you're, you're essentially, I mean, it, it's a loan you're paying off, but like every time you pay something, you're adding more value to your overall to your profile. House. That's right, right. So you're not just throwing rent away or right. throwing rent away, rent away. But I'm, I'm, that's not to say I'm, I'm. I don't want to slander anyone who who has to rent or anything like that. That's that's not my point. My my point is to say that like these aren't the conversations that I even knew existed. Right. Um. And I did, right. so I didn't even know what questions to ask because I didn't know what what this this field that I'm now a part of is, is doing. Um. So I, I think that's one thing I'm, I'm trying to get get at the get at the whole question about how your question was how does class fi figure into these conversations right and you're running the money yeah so. yeah okay yeah 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 so I, I I didn't I didn't have the language for that because I, I think I think class was so conflated and we didn't talk about it we didn't talk about the struggles we had right we didn't talk about if someone needed money what does it mean that I'm done you know it, the assumption was what what we had we should share with everyone else it, it wasn't and which I think is still a thing we should live by. Um, but it was just like money was so was was much more like this is how you get through the week versus this is how you save it and build it for generations. Right. Right. Um, right. And so in, in, in a lot of ways uh, that that's where black families in the Southwest specifically, I think that, that that's a shared lived experience that that I think a lot of black families across the nation can can agree with is not even have the language or, or the literacy, the financial literacy to, to talk about these things. And, and that's more or less how some of these things get, I guess, repeated in generations is because we just didn't know. Um, but I, and I think it's powerful to be able to sit there and say, yeah, it's, it is racially motivated. The, the reason why we don't know, have these literacies is because of race, but we should also call out the class part of race in order to really understand what these systems do to kind of keep people in certain positions in certain spaces. Right. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's how I would approach that conversation. And beautiful analysis, man, really, because, you know, and, and as you were tightening up in the back end there, you know, I, I, I'm here to tell you as well that it, it is certainly a sort of a national, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, discussion or experience for, for Black folks. I, as you're talking, I'm like, yep, I can, I remember walking into the office and the projects with my mom to pay yeah. the rent and get the, you know, the little Tootsie Pop uh, off the, 
off the, the, the shelf and, and head back. And, you know, for me, as a, as a, as an eight-year-old, you know, six-year-old, I didn't, it didn't mean anything to me. This is the process was. I didn't realize that the projects were the projects. I didn't yeah. see race in the same way because everybody in the projects, as diverse as we were, I grew up in the most diverse city in Massachusetts, statistically. Mm-hmm. As diverse as we were, we all had the same issues. And it was just different for black folks because the way out um, wasn't dependent upon right, a, a, a begrudging relative who yeah. wants you to learn your lesson. And now that you learn your lesson, you, you know, we have a soft place for you to land. The way out for us was, was scratching and clawing through, through a system, right? And paying yeah, off, yeah, of, yeah. you know, what was supposed to be a 30, 15, 30 year old mortgage, 60 years down the road, right? Family to family to family. Because we don't have that information you just talked about, right? And the mm-hmm. financial literacy, mm-hmm. I know I didn't get it. Not to say that my parents were uneducated or didn't have access to it. You, Same you, here. Yeah, yeah. you find yourself in situations I know now as a parent, right, where, <clears throat> and and my situation is very different than my own, so I'm not trying to suggest that yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not, but mm-hmm. um, I do know that you make you make calls, make decisions that yeah. you either want your kids to be a part of or not be a part of, right, and in your mind for, for the sake of their protection or whatever the case is, and I think for some of us as Black folks, it's, you know, do I put this money away? I have $5, do I save two of it? And and mm-hmm. put three here, mm-hmm. or do I need all five for the gas tank? You know, to make yep. something happen. You know, and you know, so the analysis is strong because it's very real for all of us. Mm-hmm. I, and, um, and even just, just just thinking about the reason why a lot of black families come out to to the Southwest. Uh, I mean, one of Arizona's largest crops was, was cotton, right? Right. Um, and so it's like you think about the the economic motivations for that. It's like there there are still some legacies of. I mean, not to say that that is because of slavery, but it's like, you think about the skills that they had and the only thing that they were able to do, what choice do you have, right? So, so even the, the economic motivation, just going there. Um, and I mean, it's, it's my, my grandparents were laborers and my, my grandma worked in the houses of many prominent white women, right? Like cleaning and cooking things like that's, that they were laborers, right? So it, right. it's not like, out here was this great opportunity where we're going to change generations. It's like, no, right. you just got to kind of do it. It was still this very much a survival. What can we do and what are our options? So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Without a doubt, without a doubt, man. Um, I had the honor of, of mm-hmm. listening to you on the black excellence and higher ed podcast right there at <laughs> uh, NMSU. How old was that? Yeah, podcast? Yeah. Uh, we did that uh, maybe a year ago now. Nice. Yeah. So it was not, that- yeah not, not very old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounded great. You went in. You said a lot of fantastic <laughs> stuff, uh, uh-huh. which, which helped me formulate some thoughts for our interview today. I didn't want to double mm-hmm. back per se, although I, I have a different audience. But yeah. I did want to take it as an opportunity to to tackle another area where you and I connect, which is basketball. Mm-hmm. And earlier on in the podcast, you talked about how, um, you know, you, you talked about playing basketball yeah. throughout life and then making right, the tough decision to walk away. Yeah, uh, and I know how tough that is, and and can yeah. be. And I've always considered basketball a teacher of life. Mm. I'm not talking just, um, you know, uh, how to how to you know shoot with your elbow in or how to take a little bit of contact, <laughs> you know, uh, Euro. Uh, you know? <laughs> uh, uh. I'm talking about how to right how to how to lose. You know what I mean? Mm. With, with dignity mm-hmm. and respect. How to win. Um, how to deal with adversity. You know what I mean? Um, how to how to become a part of a of a team, right? In our case, brotherhood. 
talk to me, man, and talk to the audience about what you learned from playing basketball. Yeah, what you, yeah, yeah. What you learned from your decision to turn away from it. And then, of course, mm-hmm. what you've carried with you as a result mm-hmm. of this experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, f- first and foremost, I-, I think everything you talked about, like the lessons, how to lose with dignity, how to win with dignity, right? Right, how to, right. How to, how to stay ready, right? How to right. Uh, pre- <laughs> yeah. ex- no, prepare all the way. Um, right. I think those are any any team sport anyone can play. I think these are the lessons that you should rock walk away with. Yes. Um, and then I, it, it is my hope that if, if I can sound like if I can sound like I'm getting old, which hey, it is. What it is. <laughs> uh, that, that's the thing that I, I really hope a lot of like these younger generations where AAU is really like a, a prevalent space and like Instagram is. We didn't have Instagram in the, back then when I right. played, so it was like no. there wasn't an, there wasn't these opportunities to watch these highlight tapes. I think my generation started the highlight tape because that's when YouTube was really popping. Right. Um, but but I think some of that stuff might get lost with team sports. So any team sport, I think those are the lessons you you, you learn. Um, but I think what I what I took from the game and the reason why I loved it, um, I'm I'm a very what's the word like I I I love about basketball to like think things through a couple of steps um, of to, to maybe see see how plays develop, be able to anticipate how plays develop. Um, I, I was also for both high school and club teams specifically, I, I was really big on, on defense because that was the one thing. I, I was undersized, so I, I played like four or five sometimes. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so I'm 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 six five in in, in good in a good pair of basketball shoes. I'm six five. Um, <laughs> but and so I was going up, especially in club. I was going against dudes and college going against dudes who was like six eight and up, six eight six nine. A couple couple of footers, couple of footers, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's like you have to anticipate movements. You have to know. This dude loves to go to his right shoulder. So right. once he goes, I'm just I need to be quicker and I gotta That'd jump it. Right. And so it's like the though the the cerebral part of it is, is I think what I really loved. Yes. And so I, I think that's one thing that translates to every aspect of life. It's like always kind of being critical. And I think that's why I love academia. Well, I, I love what I do, not academia. I love yeah. research. <laughs> I got you. I love writing, reading, and researching. I don't necessarily love academia. We can get to that later though. But uh <laughs> it's because it's it's this idea of like. Shout out to my guy, Jose Cortez, who also went to U of A. He, he described theory as like trying to imagine what's right around the corner, even though you can't quite see it. Right. Um, I, like that. I, think, I think that's that's one thing I really loved about basketball for me is like I was always I because I was undersized. I think I was good because I was able to always anticipate what might happen. And most of the times I was right. Um, so the, the critical thinking, believe it or not, is I think the biggest thing I take away. And I don't think a lot of people really might associate that with sports, but that's one thing I loved about it. And even watching, that's one thing I, I love to this day when I'm, when I'm watching any level of basketball, I love to like try to look at the whole play. Who's hitting the back screen? Who's, you know, where's the shooter? How, how are they curling around the screen? Are, are they, are they, you know, they're flaring around. The screen. Like those, those sort of buildups. Uh, everyone loves to watch the ball handler, but I love to watch like how it all plays out. Right. And it's funny, it's funny you say that because <clears throat> that's exactly why I stopped watching the NBA in particular. <laughs> I and, get it. I get it. You know, for me, it became a little too commodified mm-hmm. for for what the product was historically putting out. Um, mm-hmm. You got the 12th man like, man, you tell me I can make three point seven million and not get in. Shoot. I kind of <laughs> kick back, you know, and and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what did it for me? And I'm gonna to toss the microphone back to you. What mm-hmm. did it for me is that I used to own the DVD, The Ultimate Jordan. It was like a mm. a, a three parts uh, set of DVDs, and that came with a couple of full games with it. it had the '86 playoff game, Game Two yeah. when he puts up uh, 63 on the Celtics. Mm-hmm. Jordan, Celtics, yeah, yeah. He got the 
um, the 92 finals where the Bulls versus the Trailblazers. Mm-hmm. And you also had the 93 final, the Bulls versus the Suns. Of course, you had the Jazz in there as mm-hmm. well, the, mm-hmm. the 98. And I was watching Bulls versus Suns one day. Tip goes up. Uh, Cartwright gets it over to BJ. BJ hits the top of the key and runs the play. Backdoor screen. Scotty Pippen goes behind a little alley layup, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Everybody goes back down court except the best player in the world. Michael <laughs> Jordan stands 94 feet, gets low, and picks up Kevin Johnson all the way back. Full court, okay, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I watched this in 2009, uh-huh. and I made the decision at that point in time actively. I said, I can't watch basketball no more. <laughs> You're telling me the best player in the world is supposed that's, to be LeBron James? as good as it gets, right? Yeah. I, right. I've never, I don't see him today picking up 94. I rattled uh-huh. off a list of people. And, and remind you, I'm in Boston. This is this is when yeah, the big yeah. three were there, right? So mm-hmm. I'm making this I'm making this tough decision with yeah. KG, Ray, and Paul Pierce right there, right? And so I say all that to say, I'm a student of the game like you, and I'm yeah. less interested in the flashy, and I want to know who's boxing out to get that board. I want to know yeah, if, yeah. You, if if the layup is 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 educated, as I like to say. Um, mm. Who's pop? Who's shooting from foul line extension? Who's trying to shoot threes? Who's doing what, right? So I, I wanted to chime in and say I, I can appreciate the value in that because um, the cerebral component is, is, is super critical. So now what about some of the... Uh, yeah. What about some of the adversity and what you learned how to how to push yeah yeah that? um I, I think the ad, so i think there, there's the physical tolls right right um but that that i think we we always walk away from one of the things that i when i reflect on i was i was, I was low-key injury prone like not, never seriously injured but i was always being here and there which most most people are but like there, there's like everyone's bruised up and, and kind of and beaten in that way but i i was always sprained up it right. was, if it wasn't a knee, it was an ankle. If it was an ankle, mm-hmm. it was my shoulder. You know, right. always something that you sure. can still play through. But like, so I, I kind of learned to understand what that's like and then to go with that. But I think as far as adversity is concerned, um, that that's where my story to decide to walk away kind of c- comes in for me. Right. Uh, because I mean, mind you, I was playing basketball since organized basketball since kindergarten, as most most of us do, right? It, on, on some, whether it's the YMCA or it's, some other league that, that someone got going on. Um, and so like in, in a lot of ways, basketball was my identity and the way I was also made visible in Tucson. Like sure. people in Tucson, I mean, I, I might've talked about this in the other, on the other one too, but it's like that, that's the way I kind of felt validated because I was good at it. Right. So, you know, I, I felt that everyone could always ask me, how's the, how's the team going to be this year? And it's like, knowing that there's other, i I love I'm I'm a love hoops forever. Like there's 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 no way around it. It's right. it, it's it's been central to my life. But of course, I think the adversity was like what what does it mean when the thing that you have identified with so long is never it's not giving you the same thing as that it was giving you before. Right. Which I kind of realized I kind of had that realization in like high school. Like it, it it wasn't giving me the same thing that I that it was back in middle school. Um, especially senior year in high school, I was like I might be done. But you know we. That's how I identify. It's all I knew. So I like I got I got to at least try. And then you make it. You're like, oh, I'm supposed to be here, which right. you know, that's fine. But I, I think the, the decision to really understand like basketball is it's, it's going to be there in my life. It's just going to look different, and that's okay. That's um, okay. And it, it, it I don't I don't have to be the dude who's either on the court or on the bench or you know because I mean not for nothing at NAU I was like I maybe average two minutes a game only because I played like garbage minutes at the end of the game. Right. Sure. And like, I was yeah. definitely, I was, I was the dude who's like on the bench, like holding people back when we're celebrating. Like, I mean, it's not like I was out there, right? Like, it's, um, so, so it, it's not like I was, I was a star and like that, but it's just like, that's all I knew, but it's getting to that realization that 
it's it can be in your life just in different ways so what really feeds me at that time then that's where I made the switch to English is like okay I, I really love just that space of education and what that does and thinking like thinking long term that's going to feed me much more than basketball ever can in that space right like that's I, I still love to go play pickup when I can of course it's, it's my it's my favorite way to, tr- to try to stay in shape right but like right. It, it it can't be my nine to five and and that's fine it doesn't mean I'm, I'm any less than anyone else for that reason it's just right it is what it is so you know and it reminds me slightly of you know first day dmx you know love it let it go mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and if it comes back that's how strong it was yep. you know what i mean and yep. you know or but when you talked about you know thinking about using basketball as, as a sense of validation to a degree yeah um it also made me think about what well, also what does it mean or or, or who are you without it Almost, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it, it reminds me of the Avengers when Captain America and Iron Man are into his face and Iron Man hits him with yeah. that. Everything cool about you comes out of a, a, a bottle, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And, and Cap yeah. fires back is like basically saying, like, take off the suit. Take off the let, shield. Yeah, the, shoot, the suit. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's see who you are. Like, th- then let's <laughs> yeah. see, right? And, you know, something, you know, as you've used to define you that you've relied on mm-hmm. that's given you, right, the perks. Or yeah. if you want to find a, a decent analogy, the, the privilege, really, if we're talking sure, about the sure. take that off. Now, let's now let's see who yeah. you are. Who are you without this this enhancement? To sure. people, right. Uh, and you found English in a particular way, which is actually going to segue into my next question for you. Yeah. Did, did you always have a love for English and writing? I did. I did. Um, I mean, I, I'm just thinking as far as back as like middle school. Um, wow. I that the, it, it was a space where I I, I love to play with. I mean, I'm a music fan too, so that that, that kind of right. comes with it. And 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 for music, I always love like the stories, yes, and and the experience that people can kind of share and within language specifically. Like I I love the, the actual like instrumentation of things, but what I understand more is like the, the is the lyrics. Um, so like yeah, and I mean I, I remember it's either seventh or eighth grade. Like I we wrote a poem about. It, I think it was seventh grade because it was like right the year after 9-11, which was 2001. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we, we like they wanted us to write a poem to submit to some middle school anthology or something like that. And my teacher was like, this is really good. And so when, I guess it, speaking to that validation and just like I think whatever we do, anytime someone who's like mentoring us in that space can like say like, oh, I, I see you. I see what you're doing. That validation is important. That's, and that's yes. part of the reason why I love education, because I think as educators, it, it's our role to, to constantly do that for all we that we encounter. Um, and so I think that was a, that was moments where I was like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of good at this. And not only am I good, but it's like when I do it, it feels good for me, too. Right. Um, and that was just highlighted even more so in high school and, and even more so in undergrad and especially in grad school, well, certain moments in grad school. Right. Uh, so I, I think when you, when you have people saying like kind of affirming that. At the same time, it also feels good for you. Um, I think that that was the space that English was, has always been for me. And and then you you sort of took this experience and you journeyed throughout undergrad, NAU, for folks who don't know, that's Northern Arizona University. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And you got a degree in English, right? your bachelor's. Yep. And then yep. you went on and did your graduate work at the University of Arizona. Back home, right, yep. Yeah, right back here in the Tucson mm-hmm. where you got your PhD at least in RCTE, rhetoric comprehension, uh, composition in the teaching of English. Yep. Uh, and so is it safe to assume that being a professor was always the goal? Um, yeah, was it something sort you of. fell into? Okay. Sort of. Um, 
I mean, I always haven't had an affinity for the space of education. My, my parents were educators and they were really good at what they did. Um, they ended up being administrators. And I think that might kind of signal why I was interested in some form of administration, which, you know, once you're in it, you're like, eh, it's, I, I, I got I got a couple of hot takes about administration, but um, <laughs> okay. So I, the space of education always made sense to me though. So when I when I quit basketball, it was my sophomore year, uh, around October November. I think it was October of my sophomore year. Um, I was really just like, it, it was the first time because I mean, like I said, basketball has been my main thing since kindergarten. Right. Like at you know kindergarten, you're not really serious about it. You're just like, what do you like to do? I like to play basketball. Right. You know, by the time you start middle school, it's like club. So it's like outside of the school season, you always have club basketball listen to, to look forward to, which lasts from spring to the next fall. Right. And then by the time you're in high school, you're always anticipating. I played other sports, but you're always anticipating basketball season. Wait, that, happened, that was yeah. that was my that was the best team I was a part of in high school. My football team wasn't that good. And uh, so it was like, you, have, you, know, you always had that to look forward to. So it was the right. first moment where it was like, all right, Eric, what, what do you, what, who are you? What do you like to do? Right. right. Yep. Um, yep. And so that's when I thought about it. And it was like, I'm just going to make this choice. I'm not even going to worry about what jobs going to look like. I just need to be in a space. I, I, I know I wanted to, I needed to still do college because that was a space where I felt um, mattered to me. And so I was like, right. okay. What, what can you stand studying? What, what can you stand, even if you don't like the deadline or the amount, what content area can you sit through and be like, you know what, even though I don't really like this at the time, this is the content I can sit through. And then what, what's going to give me moments of, of edification? What's going to give me the moments where I really do rock with, with the finals and stuff like that? And that was English. And I had a, I had a really, I had a, a couple of advisors at Northern Arizona who they, once again, kind of speaking to this, not only did they affirm me, but what they were affirming also mattered to me. Right. Um, one of my advisors was like, have you thought about grad school? And I was like, nah, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Sure. Like, what's that like? And then she, she just told me what, because it was more so that they were seeing that I had the capacity to like sit through certain theoretical concepts and think through what they meant and try to apply that to my, to my lived experience. Um, and so when I, so I, at U of A, I was first in the master's um, and I, I wanted to do PhD, but I honestly didn't know what grad school looked like. And I'm so glad I was in the master's at first because that first semester just like through, it was, it was a lot. I couldn't jump into a PhD. <laughs> so I don't know how people do it. It was a lot. It was a lot. And I mean, U of A's master, I don't know what it's like now, but at the time they, they didn't really pay attention to the master's program. So I was in mm -hmm. class with a bunch of PhD students and, and I, I think my instructors knew I was, I hope they knew I was a master's student. So I think they, how they assessed my work was on that level. And I'm so thankful for that. Cause it was, it was a lot. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but like once, once I'm in that space, I'm like, and, and this is why I think Apart from my, my mentors at U of A, I really, really appreciate my colleagues, especially the ones who were there with me when I was first, second year master's, because they they were so amazing in, in that class space. And I saw how they were doing their work. And I was like that. It was like inspiring. I was like right. the way that they're able to break down topics is a way that I want to also do it because that that looks like everything I want. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think that was a moment when I was like, OK, this is this is what being a professor could be like. If we're able to be very critical about these concepts that we that a lot of people just assume um but then like the, they do have some long-reaching impl implications um especially when we start to get to the con to conversations of like power dynamics within language yes. instruction and all these things like that yes. um so yeah I, I i always gotta gotta shout out my colleagues in grad yeah. school they, they were the ones who showed me like oh this is what it could be Men so. mentorship guidance man i was having this discussion the other night with a couple of fellows black men um, talking about how the, the black community in some ways lacks that um, and mm -hmm. we can be a lot better 
at it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know I came up in student affairs versus the academic affairs. So we're yeah. talking res life in particular, admissions, you know, the, the bookstore, places like this, the other half of the campus. And yes. I had wonderful black male mentors um, who, as I always say, showed me how to walk, showed me how to talk, right, in my identity mm -hmm. in these predominantly mm -hmm. white spaces and, um, and who took an interest in me, took care of me, really. But also, right, there were some white folks in there who were allies, right, and advocates mm -hmm. and were, who had access to different elements of the discussion who were willing to say, um, you know, in this particular field now, yeah. um, here's how you might want to show up and how you might want to examine the way this, this arrives in these different ways. Yeah. Uh, just curious, um, any particular reason you decided to stay in Arizona for undergrad and or grad? So, I mean, I'm, I'm not, so I didn't, I didn't really know uh, that a lot of people chose grad school for like, I want to study with this person. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I still thought it was, Same. I, didn't, like, it's, I, I didn't know. So I was like, I'm going to go home. I, I only applied to Arizona. I applied to all three Arizona schools. Um, and so this is how the choice happened. So just, just to break it down, um, I was at NAU. Yep. I, at the time, I wanted to stay at NAU. They also had a master's in rhetoric program. It was all online, but they were like, oh, but since you're here, you can always come into our offices and, and talk, chop it up with us or whatever. Um, so I applied to NAU, ASU, and, and U of A. Got into all three, but the funding packages was, was, was the issue. Um, NAU put me on a wait list. Oh wow! Like, you can you can either pay for it, or if something happens and some people decline, then you'll be next up. And I was like, I mean, I guess I'll just hang on because I guess I'll wait. Uh, ASU, I I want to feel like they said the same thing, where it was like wait list. I actually applied to the PhD. I I, I should have applied to the MA in hindsight, but I applied to the PhD at U of A at first, didn't get in. And then they were like, you should, we actually were looking at your application. You should actually apply for the MA. So I was like, cool. So I applied to U of A for the master's. And then they were like, well, you're accepted and you're fully funded. Oh, wow. Um, and nice. so I was like, I guess I'm going home. And then <laughs> I, I was, I think it was like the next day NAU was like, hey, another person dropped out. So you're up for that, the funding <laughs> package. And I was wow. like, it's, it's too late. It's too Maybe late. I was being petty. I don't know. Uh, but I said, no, I'm, go I'm going home. I'm going home. So that's really how it happened. And then, and so when I was there for the masters, um, I think my second year, I, I had a conversation. So there was an Africana studies. There's an Africana studies department right at U of A, and I I would collab with some of them, and they, they had a really good talk. And I forget the professor's name, but she was. I was telling her that I was thinking about PhD, and she was trying to convince me to like look elsewhere. But I was still in the mindset like I, I'm home. I don't know if I can really do this. Like going away and doing another five years somewhere else. I'm, I'm comfortable here, which I think it, it ended up working for the best. Sure. Um, so that's the, re that's the reason why I stayed with the PhDs because I, I already made connections there. I already knew what the curriculum was like. I had good, mostly good relationships with the professors. And so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna stay here then. Makes total sense, man. I, mm -hmm. For me coming up, I didn't even know certain schools were within reach short of a scholarship. And I share mm -hmm. these stories in my workshops at times, but you know, mm -hmm. The, the market in, in Boston for basketball or sports in general is garbage, dare I say. <laughs> uh, you know, these, these, these cats yeah, yeah, would rather yeah. recruit everybody from California. Yeah. You know, it's like, we see you, Al Skinner, you know, coach of BC, wants to get all these other folks. I mean, it doesn't even look at your homegrown people. We had, yeah, yeah. We, uh, we had a, a brother by the name of Anthony Gurley, who, who, who was my guy at the time, um, um, who was clearly 
the best player in the state, clearly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I was a top 10 player in the state and I knew these dudes. He yeah. was he was clearly the best player. BC <laughs> couldn't even land him. He wanted to wait for it. And then, you know, later on at UMass Amherst after some situations, but we had some talent that that the homeschools couldn't even grab. So uh, I when I went to college, I just went to, to play ball. I was like, oh, let's go yeah. play. Yeah. When grad school came around, you know, you talk about how you didn't realize people chose grad schools, you know, for this reason. At least you had an understanding of what grad school was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wanted to do something else. And my, home, my, my friend told me, my homegirl said, hey, you should apply for this position at this school uh, and, and, and for this program. I go, what is this program? HESA, Higher Education in Student Affairs. And she's like, oh, it's like a residence life degree. And you were an RA one time. So I said, okay, great. Turned out to be much more than that, of course. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that's the only reason why I found myself there. And I, if I could have had it my way, I would have tried to find a school somewhere else. I just didn't know that I could apply in a yeah. different state. So I did all my stuff in Massachusetts as well. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. interesting how that happens. For sure. I want to read a couple of numbers to you. Uh-huh. Um, and I want to ask you about these. In 2019, there were 2,512 Black Americans who received a doctorate, mm. which is a total of 7.1%. This is up from mm. about 6.5, about almost almost about 15 years earlier or so. Um, so, uh, and like a, a, a percentage maybe is the is the increase increase in 20 years. Is this number, or this low number of PhD recipients or EDD recipients for Black folks, is this a consequence of us as Black people? Or mm. is, it, is it systemic? Mm. My initial reaction would say systemic, right? Um, just because I don't know that, this is, and this is straight anecdotal, so coming from my experience, I, I don't know that a lot of Black people I grew up with understood that what they, how they got down, how, how they thought about the world was intellectual. Um, and it's also, I, speaking from my field, the, a lot of the expectation is that to get a PhD means you want to be in academia. And I don't think that's true. Um, but I, I, so that's why I say it's systemic because I feel like more I, I would hope that more Black people could realize that what they do is so intellectual and could be so much if they just had, and it's systemic too, because you need you need the support to do so. Like if they could just take, if they had the capacity, the funding to take five or so years to really like build that craft, build that thing, then I don't know. I, th- I think it, it could be so special, but I think I think we, we've turned, we kind of turned, in my field, we've kind of turned the PhD into like oh, you want to be a professor, so you have to do this thing versus yeah. like PhD means like you, we're, we're going to fund you to really sit and think through and build these things so that you can go out and do the work you need to do in the world. Um, the work I want to do happens to be in education, so which is why I'm here, right? But also, I, I, if something happened and my university came to me tomorrow and was like, all right, it's, it's quiet for you, it's time to go, then I'm, I, I'm, I know that my experience with my PhD allowed me an opportunity to think so critically about certain things that I can go anywhere in this nation and kind of do the work that I want to do. Right. Like I can be very intentional about where I go. Right. But I think systemic right. because I, I really wish as, as many black intellectuals that, that I've met who had, who has never, they've never been told that they were intellectual because they've been told that the way that they get down is not acceptable in certain spaces. Right. I really wish that they had that, that the capacity to do so. And, and I think that's, that's part of my mission in this space too, is 
you know, what, what are, how could I as a professor start to like create and cultivate some of those, some more of those moments and occasions, right? For sure. And in that, uh, what does it mean? What does it mean to be a black man in, in higher ed or even in the mm -hmm. academy? Or, or I'll do you one, I'll do you one better. What does yeah. it mean to be a straight black man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read or in the academy. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, it, it means from for me, it means that at at one point I gotta hold and understand the expectations that come with that. Um, because in, in a lot of ways that there there is some pressures against that, right? On the other end, it means that I need to do the, the work to understand why. So I, I love that you added the, the straight black man aspect. I, I gotta understand that straight black men have done a lot of damage too. Hmm. Uh, and there, there's reasons for that, but I think that we we need to be very reflective of that, mm -hmm. right? And say that to be a part of the, of, of to, to be a, to be a working part or a, a, a responsible part of the black community. We need to acknowledge damage that straight black men have done. Not, not to say damage hasn't been done to straight black men, straight black men as well, because of course sure. it has. Course. But hurt, I mean, hurt people hurt people, right? So like, you gotta acknowledge mm -hmm. the damage you've done as well and say like, I, if we want to also get better then we gotta acknowledge that. So on one hand there, there's these pressures as like, I, I am an anomaly in, in, in the academy. But on the other hand, it's like, but also in the space of the black community, I gotta be very upfront and saying like, this is the role that straight black men have played. So if someone looks at me that way, I can't just be like, not me. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm implicated in that. So mm. teach me, tell me how to do better so, so that we can continue to build as a community. You know what Very interesting. Uh, I like that, uh, that, that, that phrase you use there, hurt people, hurt people. Very interesting. And, you know, and I, I, I think about just, just a person who's been able to sit on both sides of the fence, student affairs mm -hmm. and academic affairs within higher yeah. ed. <clears throat> there is a clear, there tends to be a clear um, exercising of, of racism that I've come across mm. that is designed to um, sort of self for the, for the racist, right? To yeah, sort yeah, yeah. of self-activate or um, um, to kind of, to, to fulfill for them this, 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 preconceived notion they already have of what you're supposed to be, how you're yeah. supposed to behave. I remember, <laughs> I remember mm -hmm. uh, coming to a position uh, at the university, actually. And I, um, I was hired into a role that was an assistant director role. And the, the focus was diversity and inclusion, social justice. Mm -hmm. And I, I got there and I already had a grad student who was a young woman of color, who was a black woman, yeah. biracial, uh, black, green eyes, uh, and um, later on, I would find out that people would say to themselves, oh, why is, you know, Sherrod with her? Oh, he obviously just picked her because of how she mm -hmm. looks. Uh, but the fact <laughs> of the matter is she was hired in that position before the job description went up, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So if I was a, you know, a, a disabled white woman, she still would have been the grad student, yeah. right? It doesn't matter. But for them, the picture that yep. fits best is right the straight black man who uh, is clearly right misogynistic or or mm. sexual predator as they uh, framed us in the past, right? So thinking about your perspective and my yeah, perspective, yeah. looking at both elements of right that that black male or even that straight black male experience, and then some we hadn't yeah. even tackled, right, yeah. um, in more depth. 
it's interesting to to see how that how that shows up and how that how that arrives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what what exactly is let's transition a little bit to your work. Yeah. What is it, what is hip hop pedagogy? What exactly is that? What does that mean? It's it's, it's recognizing that hip hop as as a social cultural force has the capacity for intellectual labor that it's not often given. Um, it's to say that specifically for black and brown youth um, and, and adults too, um, that hip hop is a way to help make sense of the world, which should be, in my opinion, um, the, the, the task of education in general, right? And so it's, it's leaning in and recognizing that these worldviews matter and we need to really think about what it means to teach through these worldviews. Um, which is not to say that the white teacher who's never really rocked with hip hop should all of a sudden incorporate in their class. It's to say that we should give space for the student to express themselves in these other ways. And the white teacher needs to learn how to assess that in ways that are not going to be like, uh, what's the word? But the white teacher needs to learn how to assess that in a, in a way that's not pushing this integrationist model, like, a, like assimilate to what I think is the right way, but like, how do you wanna make sense of the situation? And how should I assess in a way that doesn't really rely on this integrationist model of education? That's how I understand it. Really at the core of cultural competency, at least the way mm-hmm. I deliver it as a workshop, the, the celebration yeah. of differences. That's exactly. um, how can I make space, although my assignment is, is A, how can I make space when B arrives? And it meets, meets the assignment as presented, yeah. but just in this fashion. Um, a, a simple way is I want you to do a presentation. Everybody's doing a PowerPoint, but you decide to do a, a shoebox diorama, right? Or post a presentation. Uh, how yeah. do I make space for what looks to be a little bit different, although it meets the qualifications and the criteria? Yeah. I love that. Uh, yeah. I imagine, right, Hamilton, right? As wonderfully as it's been received, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually gonna go see it next month. I'm excited. Okay. My wife got some tickets. I'm not a musical guy at all, but this, you know, <laughs> It's yeah, different, yeah, yeah. as you know. Of course, of course. Uh, as lovely as it's been received, and everybody's raved about it, and the awards is one, I have to imagine it's ruffled some of the feathers of the traditionalists, right, when oh, it comes sure, to, sure it to history and to the way white narratives uh, are mm. to be told. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on the impact, now that hip-hop pedagogy and presenting yeah. hip-hop as a tool to challenge norms and yeah. systems has been received yeah um i think that we're we're still in a space where the practice is to look at for stick with hamilton for a second to look at hamilton and say like let's analyze how they talked about history so let's analyze hip-hop texts right versus a hip-hop pedagogy perspective where it was like how did they create this moment what, what was the creative capacity that led to uh, turning some of these, these like, you know, more tense political historical conversations into rap battles? Or what, what, what does it mean um, to even dream of founding fathers, if you will, as like black and brown people? How, how does that shift our conception of history in general? Um, I, I think those are the conversations that hip hop pedagogy wants to have is, 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 is more so like, what does it mean to really re- radically reimagine the foundation um, as opposed to like doing a textual analysis of a hip hop right. song, right? 
Um, so how, how has it been received? I don't know that we're in a space where like we can even acknowledge that something like a hip hop epistemology or like seeing and seeing and confirming knowledge through hip hop means is acceptable. I don't know if we're there yet. I think I think we're in the place where people are like, oh, hip hop is still here. So now we, I guess we should analyze this rap song and write a thesis statement about, you know, what, what this rap song is doing versus like what, what teachers really allow students to just go up there and like spit a 16 right quick. And that right. is that enough for an essay? Right. I don't know. Right. Um, so I, I think I think there's there's a lot of space to go, but I think there's amazing work and scholarship who are pushing us in that direction. Um, so I'm excited to see where it's going to go because I think that one of the beautiful things of, and just to kind of go back to the the last answer right. is that not not only are, not only are students already coming in with this hip hop foundation, but now this next generation of teachers and instructors and professors and everyone involved in the space of uh, education administration are also of the hip hop generation as well. Right. So I'm really excited to see what that might mean. Yeah, I know I was <clears throat> for a while when I started in the higher ed sphere, I was a part of a group called Hip Hop Ed. Mm. Um, I remember going to a conference, it was a round table and folks just sat down in circles and just kind of wrapped, not not literally wrapped, but you know, just chopped it up a little yeah. bit about, about, you know, what role hip hop has in higher ed. And, you know, if we're looking at hip hop as a as black culture, uh, I remember when I was on the market way back and I was looking to, uh, join a couple of different you know, find a school to work for full time yeah. went to a job expo and I met uh, I was being recruited at the time by NCU North Carolina Central University NCU and uh I met <clears throat> a few people who recruited me they said Rod man can you check it out why don't you come meet the uh the vice president said, what that level <laughs> was way that was like a level you couldn't get near what do you mean yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. Just a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a grad student who's trying to still graduate Nah, come check it out, man. You know, he's over here. I forgot what the gentleman's name is. So I walk up into a rap battle, like to a cipher. Oh, okay. A legitimate cipher going on. Yeah. And yeah. he's in the middle. Okay. Going in. And yeah. then he said, he paused it. Sorry about that, young blood. What's your name? And and it was the first time in my entire life that I ever came across a black person, in this case, a yeah. black man, in a professional setting being 1000% authentically themselves uh, uh -huh. while, while wearing the title. I'm not talking, this isn't after five o'clock. Right? Yeah, this, yeah. this isn't, you know, this isn't out at the bar. This is <laughs> on the clock on camp. Yeah, at yeah. a job expo, right? With, with the thousands of people representing yeah. your university. That's dope. Pardon yeah, yeah. me one second, I got to finish this cipher up. I'll be right with you. <laughs> what, right? And, 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 you know, that's when I knew like there's a, there is a space for this. It wasn't my field and my focus, but I knew that there were there there was there's somewhere that black folks can be authentically themselves yeah um and we have to figure out how to normalize that mm -hmm. and so and you took a journey to this so talk to us a little yeah, bit yeah. about your, your dissertation um and and yeah. how you came to right examining some of these elements yeah um if you so, remember it's been some time <laughs> it's, it's been a while right but uh i i, I mean i I gotta start looking back at like my undergrad work. And there are there were a few moments in undergrad where some of my essays were talking about like what hip hop can do for rhetoric um, and rhetoric and composition specifically. Yes. Um, and I mean, you, you go back to those things and you're like, oh, I mean, that's a lot of holes in the argument, but at the same time, that that's where it started. So I've always had this interest in, in this engagement. And I, I think the reason why I really started, um, let me shout out, shout out to my guys at NAU. Um, we would just sit and debate rappers all the time, mm. all the time. 
um, so many different takes. And it, it was always recognizing that some of us had different styles that we liked. Like I was, I'm not gonna lie, I was I was the boring dude who like wanted to listen to J. Cole at the pregame. And I was like, I'm not trying to hear that. But that was me. That was me. Like I, I love the like introspective, like that that yeah. was that was kind of how I got down. You're a Tim um, Duncan guy. <laughs> I'm a I'm not, I am, I am. It is what it is. It is what it is. Um and so like I was I would always think about those moments and I'm like, you you can't tell me that a, a group of mostly black black men sitting in around this room like debating rappers, you can't tell me that that's not intellectual. Right. Um, right. You can't tell me that that's not like rhetorical, really, like when we're thinking about like who we're arguing with and the points we're trying to make and how we get these things out. Right. And so every every time I had a conversation, especially when I got to grad school, thinking about like the work we did, I was like, I mean, we, we do this though. Like we already do this. We just don't have the language for it. Right. Um, and I mean, so a couple of people I got to shout out. So one, the idea of DJing was always interesting to me. My dad was a DJ, nice. uh, not a hip hop DJ. Okay. I don't know if you like me saying that. He always tries to say whatever. Uh, but he, so we, we have records on records at my house, like vinyls. Nice. Kind of beat up, but still, it was it was always interesting. Well used, that's through. all. Yeah, well used. That, I all. like that. I like that. So it was always interesting to kind of go through and flip through, see what we had. I mean, some of them were my dad's. You can tell the funk records. Uh, some of them, some of them were my mom's. My mom was big on like she was big on like eighties R and B. So like Anita Baker, like when I hear Anita Baker's voice, I just think of my mom. Like that's kind of the vibe that she was nice. in. Nice, nice. Um, and so that that was always kind of interesting. And I, I grew up in Oxcord culture, right? Where you always wanted to be the one controlling the iPod and playing the songs, right? Yeah. So so I still always had that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So so uh so there was always interest there, right? So I, I guess gotta shout out Adela Lincona at U of A. She was the the program head at the time when I first started my PhD. And we had to do these things called uh, I don't remember, it was like critical cultural. Experience. It was, it was the, the naming was really weird. Um, I think she kind of recognized it was a little strange sometimes. And so I, I, to try to fulfill that requirement, I asked her like, can I learn how to DJ? And she was like, that sounds amazing. So it, it was one of those in institutional moments where I'm so grateful that I had someone who was super critical um, about how these things work, that I needed that affirmation. I, need, I needed her to, to, to say, yes, you can do this. And so then I, I, I might've mentioned before I had an older cousin who hates all the rappers I like, but he was a big Tucson rapper in, in the community. And so he had a, a DJ so, named Spencer, shout out to Spencer, DJ alias. Who right. he, I, I linked up with him and he taught me a couple of things um, and kind of got me started on that journey. And so when I started working with Spencer, I only met with him a couple of times, but in those times it really messed up everything I thought I knew about like the process of like building songs of breaking records and, and stuff like that. Right. And as I was going through that experience, I was like, this is like writing. This is the processes we talk about, how we go back and revise things and remix things. This is what that is. Right. So it's like, okay, okay. So what, what would it mean to think of the DJ as a writer? What would it mean to think of the process of, of finding a break, of looping, of sampling? And how do we translate that in ways that make sense for students in, in the space of writing? Sure. Um, so that was big to start that. And of course, I got to shout out Stephanie. You know what I'm saying? I got to shout her out because then when, when she when she came to U of A, it was like, okay, the frame makes sense. But like you, you're mentioning the resistance of it all. But like one, I think she helped me really understand like the literary side, literacy side of things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that just took it to a whole nother level. Yes. But it was also like, it was also like, okay, but like, who are you citing? Right. And, right. Oh, yeah. And 
how how can you make sure you're you're also remembering that black women have always been in the space and have always impacted the space and i think that's what it really like turned it up for me because i was like mm -hmm. okay if we're talking about resistance if we're talking about the hip-hop's doing all these things like we need to make sure that who we're citing in the work that they're doing makes sense um so i think i all that thing all of that came together and i think that's where i got to my dissertation project which is basically making an argument for the dj as an as a metaphor or an image of what it means to be a writing administrator and a writing teacher and how all those identifications cha change and challenge what we think about writing in the first place that's great man that's amazing yeah. you yeah. <laughs> i actually don't i don't think i knew that or yeah um the element and, and for folks listening stephanie by the way is my wife um <laughs> worked with with eric uh, and as an advisor of sorts but yeah uh, yeah that's that's wow and, and exactly the 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 way you said she offered a helpful, healthy critique and to make you yeah. think deep, that's, that sounds exactly like her. I mean, she's, <laughs> uh, she joined me through my uh, dissertation in, in yeah, yeah. as well so as, an, as an advisor, to be honest with you, a whole different program. So I appreciate yeah. that. And it's actually a nice segue to my next question. I only got a couple more yeah. for you. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I know you utilize the feminist sort of lens in your dissertation because even my wife was your advisor. And, I, and I, so I, I know that she's gonna make sure that that's in there. We step back and think about hip hop. You already talked about Rhapsody. You talked about uh, a few other women. Um, is there space for feminism in hip hop? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I think there needs to be. What does it look like? Sorry, go ahead. There, there, there's, what does it look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there absolutely needs to be. Uh, one, because women have always impacted hip hop uh on the scholarly side of things i think about uh gwendolyn Pugh, who she has a great book called check it, check it while i wreck it um when she basically talks about like how hip-hop has tried to uh basically push black women out of the public space but it's but the, the power of black women's performance in hip-hop has always shown uh, a, a wrecking or a calling out directly to make space within hip-hop so these things have already been happening. Um, and then like just, it, it's really funny how subtle rappers, mainstream rappers might even acknowledge this. Mm -hmm. One of my, so I don't know that I'm a big Drake fan anymore, but Drake was definitely the soundtrack for us like in like 2009 until for me, like huge. maybe 14. I was maybe a huge 14 fan as well. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I, I could say without any shame that Take Care is one of my favorite albums. Without listen, and hold on a second, because this is this is this is I want to be very clear. Anytime people have this argument about best albums of all time, I'm always loud and proud to make sure that, that gets in there. <laughs> always. For me, a it's, five, it's, a, it's, it's a great word. A five-star album is one you do not have to hit skip on, and that is at the Facts. top of the list. And while I'm, while I have the microphone before I throw it back to you. I've, I maintain, and I could be off here, I'm fine with that, but the song Take Care, in my mind, is one of, if not the most well-written songs. Mm. Well-written mm -hmm. of all time. Mm -hmm. Okay, back to you. I see that. No, I see why. I see why. <laughs> but no, so there, there's a track in Take Care, um, After Marvin's Room. The song is called Buried, Buried Alive, I believe, yep. and it's Kendrick in it, right? Yep. And, and one of the subtle things, he, he's, he's kind of like talking about meeting, meeting Drake in that song. I'm assuming he's talking about meeting Drake in that song. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the lines he says when they're having their first conversation is like, we, we talk casually about the industry and how the women are the tastemakers for the stuff we're making. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're, you're, so you're acknowledging that, right? That yeah. like women are already controlling like what sounds good and what is good rap music, right. what is good hip hop, right? So like, right. so, so why, why are we 
if, if you can acknowledge that, why why is this like larger hip hop community like trying to act like that's not true? Right. Um, and so I I think recognizing or calling for a hip hop feminism, it's it's not I don't know. Maybe this goes back to what I was saying about straight black men in the in the academy as well. It's recognizing that you you don't have to act like white people to be successful. Yes, <laughs> you you don't you don't like it's, it's very white of us to be like nah we we can only there can only be one on top. Like no, there's there's space for all of us. It could be it could be beautiful if, if we kind of cultivate and create that space, co-create that space. Um, so I think I think it looks like recognizing that straight black men shouldn't I forget the I forget the person who wrote that article but he kind of talked about the, the title might be kind of sensational but the point still remains where he was sure. saying that like straight black men are the white people of black people right it's, it's, it's that idea mm-hmm. so we don't we don't got we don't have to be that you know it's, no. right and, and it's and it's and it's dope to acknowledge that that's not the case and historically it's not been the case like I think it was, it was a big moment I didn't really watch the verses but I saw one of the clips I saw from the big daddy king when you like gave Roxanne Shante her, her, her flowers, right? Like that was mm. huge. That's huge. Um, to, to acknowledge that, yeah, this is already going on, right? So what, why are we acting like it's not? And why are we forcibly putting identities in hierarchy when we know that, to quote Kendrick, that black women specifically have always been the tastemakers for, for music in the black community. <laughs> so without a doubt, without a doubt. Yeah. And, you know, I, I sing all the time, man. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a crooner. I fancy mm-hmm. the prunes, you know, so we're talking mm-hmm. 20th century jazz and Nat King Cole, mm-hmm. Dima and Frank Sinatra, you know what I mean? Some of these yeah. folks who, cause you know, I'm a little bit of a baritone bully, you know what I'm saying? And so <laughs> I can't be out here as if yeah, I'm yeah. Bruno Mars, you know what I'm uh, saying? Uh-huh. So, right. But mm-hmm. the women of that era, I mean, the Ella Fitzgeralds, right? The, 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 the Billie Holidays, you know what I mean? Yep. The, the black women who, were really, really setting the tone in unmistakable ways for yeah. the future of music, as you're saying, um, are the ones we have to we have to give it up to, right? And I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about the, the line from Kendrick, which I remember buried alive. Actually, mm. uh, I knew exactly what you were talking about when you said it. And <clears throat> how much of of a black woman's perceptive spot in hip hop, this idea of the, the tastemakers for, for what we're making, has to do with with keeping the power away from them though. Mm. If you had to, mm. if you had to, to change the content of a song yeah. that moved away from, you know, the, the strip clubs or, or some other maybe stereotypical approach and, yeah. and, and, and to live qualified it or most deft it or, or uh, loop it mm. is, is, is hip hop mainstream hip hop still the same? Mm. It's a great question. And I'm like, when I, you know, there are rappers who are like, no, I make music specifically for this, yeah, yeah, this yeah. area who, mm-hmm. right, and who sell like future, you know what I mean? A few of these folks and you yeah. got, you got the folks, you know, you got, uh, you know, uh, uh, the roots who to hip hop heads yeah, yeah. Are, are at the top of the list. Yeah. But to mainstream folks, I'm not listening to this, you know, they're not talking about the <laughs> yeah, right stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that. And this, this, I might be idealistic, but I'm, I'm, I'm a rock with it. See what happens. I, I think that the beauty of some of these acknowledgements is saying that it doesn't necessarily change the story. It just changes what characters you kind of allow to be visible in the story. 
Right. right. So I don't know if it changes. I, I think right. I think the mainstream was inevitable because of, because of the capitalist machine. I mean, we can have a lot of critiques about that, but I don't know that it changes the story per se. Right. Fair enough. It just recognizes that the character who they tried to act like was just a supporting character was was maybe a main character. Right. And, right. and that's fine because I think that what, what what when you acknowledge those those changes, what it does is it signals to to the younger generations and, and those who are not really familiar with the culture that like. Mm-hmm. How we get down is, is, is different, right? Right. Um, you teach a course, uh, or at least you taught one that is, was on theory and criticism. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Uh, do you teach that currently or was that no, no course? Uh, yeah, it's, I'm going to teach that in the spring again. Okay. It's going to be my second or third time teaching that class. Yeah. And in this course, you engage in an exercise you call rhetorical critique, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you why this exercise is important and why you do it. But I want to, yeah. I want to, I want to flesh this out a little bit more and tell you yeah. about why I'm coming here. Um, mm-hmm. And for the sake of time, I'm going to put these two questions into one. Um, critical theories in general, race, agency, even feminism, as we just talked about, is, is in general heavily misunderstood, but even more so today um, in terms of its, its, its controversy. Yeah. Thinking about the class you teach and this exercise mm-hmm. you do, mm-hmm. can you explain what critical theories, such as right, the aforementioned agency, race, et cetera, what they are trying to accomplish and why either they're heavily misunderstood or why they should not be misunderstood? I know it's a lot, yeah. but- Yeah, no, 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 it's, it's a great question. Um, and I think these are the sort of things we try to, to unpack in that class, at least early, we, we have the, Sometimes too theoretical conversations. I say too theoretical because I think theory should serve uh, the, the people asking it to. It should serve the questions that we want it to serve. And I, I kind of get this idea from Bell Hooks where she was saying theory is a liberatory practice if we ask it to be, right? Um, I might be, I'm, if I misquoted that specifically, I apologize, but it's something along those lines. Yep, um, is that Ian? I follow you. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. Um, so, so in that class, uh, what, what we, we start with rhetoric and culture and talk about cultural rhetoric as a way to kind of view the, not only the world, but how language does things within the world. Um, and I think the reason why I like to start with cultural rhetoric, because my understanding of cultural rhetoric suggests that we all should take note of the spaces and places we inhabit and how those experiences and histories impact why we feel the way we do about language. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is, I think, to, to bring up something you were saying earlier is to say that it, it could be, in my opinion, a beautiful thing when we learn how to live through difference, because difference is, to me is an inevitability that we shouldn't try to get rid of. Right. right. Um, so I think theory comes into play there um, when we realize that the process of theorizing or thinking through, to, to go back to Jose's quote, to the process of thinking through what's right around the corner that we can't see, doing so from by recognizing our positionalities could be a very generative practice. Right. Um, so right. there was another part of that question I want to make sure I answer. Um, no, I, I, I threw a lot at you. you I yeah. was just, I was just asking you sort of about why do you think these critical theories yeah. are, are, are misunderstood? Um, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And why okay. should they not be misunderstood? Yeah. Okay. So, and, 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 in answering that part of the question, I, I want to think about like the, the recent attack on critical race theory, right? Right. Um, theory is about trying to understand the world as we see it and trying to imagine new possibilities. Mm-hmm. But I think some people hear the language and assume that something must inherently be wrong with who we are. Mm. Especially yes when we're critical. And no. 
Yeah. Right. Yes and no, right? Like feminism isn't necessary if if a gendered based equality was a reality. Mm-hmm. Race, critical race theory isn't a thing if there was consensus that racial equality was a thing. Right. But I think we have hard lived experience, hard data about how that's not the case. And so if anyone's ever kind of worried about a theory, they're worried about not necessarily what's actually happening, but more so worried about the, the potential to change what's happening, right. which signals why there's some misunderstandings, right? right. right. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, that I'm married to a white woman. Shout, shout out to my mother-in-law. Like she, that's the last person I'd ever expect to have like a critical conversation about race. But like lately <laughs> we've, we've been having like really impactful and powerful conversations about race. And I'm like, that, and and it's moments like that where I'm like, oh, so the theories can make sense if we if we take them as opportunities to really reflect and really observe the world that right. we're living in, and not only from our own perspectives, but imagine how how relative those are and how other perspectives might mean different things. That's where theory can, for me can change because my, my mother-in-law, she's born and raised in rural Illinois, right? They've lived in rural places almost their whole life. But yet right. we're having like serious conversation about what, what her whiteness means, right. which is great. Cause I mean, it, it'd be a very different family dynamic if we weren't able to have those conversations. Right. Oh yeah. Which, which seeks that. And I think sh- shout out to my, my wife too. Like we have these, we have a lot of conversations about like what race means, what does our relationship mean and how do these things work out? Um, which is important. I think our relationship shows why something like a critical race theory is important because I don't know if we, if we would work out if she was like, race isn't real. You're just being, you know, ridiculous. Like it One wouldn't, it wouldn't work because, <laughs> right. like, because what what she's just what she would be essentially saying is like your lived experience is not really mean. So I don't That's see right. that. So we're That's just gonna right. keep moving from there. But what, right. what it is is like, oh, so there's a capacity for us to really reflect on some of the privileges we were afforded. Not necessarily saying that we should do away with those, but saying, okay, if I'm in this space, what I'm gonna do is like study and read and have conversations the best way I know how so that we can really understand what's going on and maybe imagine that new possibility that we can't quite see, right. but we know might be just around the corner, right? So Right, especially if, if kids are in the conversation at some point in mm-hmm. time, that's when it becomes even more important. Absolutely. Which, leads me, which leads me to my final question for you, my good yeah. friend. So sure. thank you again for taking some time out your day and kicking with us on the chopping block. Of course. It's a question a little bit loaded, so forgive me, but um, (laughs) it's something that I have been been, uh, in discussion with for a while with a few different people. My my intro question really is, are you familiar with the very real but philosophical conversation between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois at the turn of the 20th century? Do you know at all what I mean by that? Can you refresh me? Yeah. Uh, you know, W. E. B. Du Bois wrote the, the, the sort of the book, Soul of Black yeah. Folks. Right? Soul of Black Folks, yeah. 1903, right? Yeah. He, he writes Double this. Double all that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. He writes this in the middle of a, I say very real because it was discussion, but also philosophical yeah. conversation between Booker T. Washington himself. In short, right, the discussion is the future of, of the Negro, to use a language, right? So the, yes. In yes, the yes, future yes. of Black folks. Yeah. Uh, Booker T. Washington was suggesting what we need to be doing is getting ourselves into trades because we're recently freed 40 years uh, and this is what we know best. We spent centuries being in the fields, being in the sinks, being on the, on the carpentry, whatever you name it, a smith of some sort. So this idea of doing something else would not best support the future of the Negro. Yeah. W.E.B. Du Bois is saying, I hear you, but that is limiting 
yeah. where we need to be is inside these universities because that's where the power is. And I don't mean power to, to rule the world, but power to make real significant change. Start yeah. thinking about, as he called the talented 10, right? and, and start imagining if 10% of us made up essentially the, the, um, the, the, uh, the, 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 the higher sphere in terms of access to power and could really make a difference in our community. So it's this conversation about where do we go as a people? Should we start pursuing higher education? And remember W.E.B. Du Bois was from Massachusetts, Great Barrington, and the first ever uh, black graduate from Harvard, especially mm -hmm. the PH whole nine, right? So his perspective is, is different. It's privileged in a different way. And the conversations I've been, I find myself in as of late is in this ballpark, right? The future of, of the black community, specifically with our children and our students. So I wanna leave you with a question, pick your brain on whether we should be pushing our black children, students towards more fields that generate uh, community responsibility in a different way that might even lead mm -hmm. to some wealth like medicine, mm -hmm. like law, like education, like business ownership, going back to the first thing we talked about uh, early on. Yeah. Or should we continue to create space for our black children and students to pursue careers in African-American studies, gender and women's studies, uh, philosophy that will not, that 10 years down the road, when you're seeking a dentist in the black community, you don't have anybody <laughs> there. Or when you're yeah, looking yeah. to buy from a local corner store, it's not black, it's everybody else. Yeah. It's loaded, like I said, but I just want to pick your brain course, on all course, of that. Of course. You can start anywhere you want. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. I apologize if my answer is annoying, but uh, <laughs> shout out Adela Lincoln, who I mentioned earlier. She really uh -huh. got me on, on, on this wave back then. She's like, why, why are we always like assuming binaries and like having to do it either or with the situation? Mm -hmm. And like, what, what if we imagine a world where it was both and, right? Because like sure. systemic change suggests that we need like critical conversations and, or so I should say we, should, we need critical conversations, but like we need black people in all these spaces, right? Um, in order for some form of systemic societal change. It, it can't just be the academy. I, I, we, we have a men of color group here at NMSU and uh, the conversation came up about like, what, what, what does real change look like, especially here? And one of the things I said, and being here, I'm like, the, the academy might not be the saviors it, it wants to you know position itself to be. I don't think it is. I, I recognize the limitations of the work that we can and can't do. Um, but I think we do important work at the same time. Right. I mean, I, I think Booker T. Washington side of thing makes sense. Like you, we, we need trades, like we, we need that area as well, right? Right, um, right. And so I, for, for some reason, I, I feel like as a black community, we, we have so much, like we, we need to have a singular vision and by which I think that makes sense. I think having shared ideals makes sense. Sure. But I don't think that the shared ideals suggest that we all need to do the same thing, right? Yeah, indeed. Of course. Um, and so that, that's how I'd probably respond to it. Like, why, why can't we be in all the spaces and why can't we have a community that supports us in all the spaces? Because, you know, last time I checked, eh, sometimes, last time I checked, I don't think white people are like, well, we can only be in this one way. They're like, no, we're, you know. and I'm not saying we need to compare ourselves to white people. But no, I'm right, saying, right, right, like, right. I'm, I'm saying like, I. But I think that's a piece of the argument is, uh, but, Granted, though white folks sound like we can only be in one space, <laughs> you'll find a white doctor 
you'll find a white sure. dentist, you'll For find sure. a white lawyer, right? In ways yeah. that you won't find black yeah. doctors, dentists, and lawyers, and there's other systemic right, reasons yeah. for that. But a lot of our black students are wanting to become activists as they should. Yeah. Okay. In ways that deter them from from joining some of these other you. areas that you. when you raise your kids, like I want a black dentist, I want a black yeah, yeah. child daycare center, I want a black that they're they're either there or not there, depending on where you. they go in this direction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and so considering yeah, that makes sense, right? Um, and it's I don't know, I, it can't be the burden purely on black people to always be the activists because I mean what that it's I don't know. I, I think you, you you do need people in places of power, but also you need the, the people who are in places of power need to be critical people as well. They can't just- Of course, kinda, yes. They, they, they also can't skate through on their blackness as as the as the token black dentist, right? right and say, right. Well, I made it. So, cause that's, um, not that I'm trying to slander any black conservative people, but if there's a common theme I've heard from like, especially black conservative people, it's like, I made it, I pulled right. myself up. It's right. like, yeah, but like, you have to look at, you have to look systemically. And like, if if you're the, this is, is really funny. Like one of my favorite books within the past, I read in this past decade actually, is is uh, Outliers. Mm -hmm. um, and I think so many people read Outliers and they're like, oh, I need to do my 10,000 hours and then I'll be good. But it, like the, the argument is like, like that Malcolm Gladwell is presenting is like, it's not so much about doing your 10,000 hours. It's about having the support and the foundation and being able to understand why you were able to do your 10,000 hours in the first place, right? So it's, so my, so my critique for these black conservatives who are saying, I pulled myself up, it's like, yeah, but what, what were the reasons why you were able to and why can't the rest of us do the same thing? And, right. and if, that's not a, if, not, if that's not something you're worried about, then you we need to have a conversation about who you're purporting to speak for, because that's not, it's not how it works, right? Right, right, beautiful. And, and then, where has that fish hook gone? You throw it back mm -hmm. right at us yep. and, and to, to get full yep. in there. Dr. E House, man, I really appreciate you being here. This was lovely. Sir, lovely sir, great. Interview. I'm glad we got a chance to chop it up. My, Before I let you go, man, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, do you have uh, social media handles, publications, websites, podcasts, yourself, anything? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on both Twitter and Instagram. I'm, I'm not really active. I'm, I'm the dude who like likes everything but never really posts in my life. <laughs> Uh, but both Twitter and Instagram, I, I, I think my handle is at Mr. House Call. Okay. Football, football reference for those of you who don't really know about what, what House Call means. Uh, but yeah, so all, you can find me there. Uh, if anyone ever wants to have conversations, I'm, I'm comfortable giving my email out. My, my email is eahouse at nmsu.edu. Hit me up. We can always chop it up about any of these things that I talked about. Um, yeah, I think most of my publications are in places that it's kind of hard to access. I don't. I think the only thing that you can kind of maybe see see in the open space is I I was a part of like a I don't know what you would call it. It was in the summer of 2020, uh, a site called Constellations, um, which is a cultural rhetoric journal. They they hit up a bunch of black scholars to really make sense of the moment and say like, okay, if we're talking about cultural rhetoric, what does this mean? Um, it was a really dope kind of conversation we had. So go go check that out. Um, yeah, and that's it. Hit me up. Beautiful. Make sure y'all hit him up, man. Thank you all for listening. Dr. Eric Hollis, Sherrod Robbins, and you're on the chopping block at thisworldchange.org.